been to the Lord for help, friends, we turn to the chapter that we read there in Leviticus chapter 16. And our text in the words of verse 21. Leviticus 16, verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send them away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And so on. Last night, for uh, those who can remember that, we're asking the question, where have your sins gone? And we try to answer that according to Scripture in Romans chapter 4, where Paul quotes Psalm 32. This evening, we are moving on to consider a slightly different but related question. How have your sins gone? Where have they gone? They have gone away in forgiveness and in covering. How? How has that happened? They have been removed. They have been cast away. They are covered. But how? Well, in order to try to answer that question, we want to have before us tonight the pattern of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement here in Leviticus 16. And what the scapegoat is picturing is the imputation of our sins upon Christ. Last night we could marvel at the other part of the great exchange, which is the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon us. What a marvelous thing. Well, here we ponder the placing of our sin and transgressions and iniquities upon the shoulders of the blessed Saviour. The great day of atonement, known still today as the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, was is brimming with all different pictures and types and shadows of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was it was carefully calculated by God. It was it was deliberately designed to draw the souls of the children of Israel so that they might see what salvation was meant to be and what this coming salvation would mean for them. There would be a sacrifice that would come one day that would truly atone for sin, their sin, all their sin, in one sacrifice that would atone between them and God. Now, I'm sure many of you here, if not all of you here, have a better memory than I do. Um, but if at all you, like myself, you may find it very difficult to keep in mind all of the things that actually happen on the Day of Atonement. I'm sure at different points from different ministers, we've heard these things preached, and when we hear them preached, that's all very well. We can follow along, but trying to remember it again is something very different. So... In order to set the context, I want us just in the introduction to try to run through very quickly uh, what happens. And I trust that will be for my benefit and perhaps for yours as well. First of all, there's a certain context to the institution of the Day of Atonement. It wasn't given at the very start of all the Mosaic laws. When they were given the, the pattern of the tabernacle and so on, the Day of Atonement wasn't actually there. It was 
set and given here in Leviticus 16. And the context, if we'd had time to read more of it, was actually the death of Aaron's sons. The beginning of the chapter alludes to that. But the wider context was the disobedience of Aaron's sons. And they were killed by the Lord because of their disobedience. And so God, therefore, had said, you are not to come before me always. There will be a set time in which you will come and a set way in which you will come. You won't simply have the, the casual liberty that the sons of Aaron had assumed to themselves and presumed wickedly. Now, that is actually not harsh. That restriction is a restriction of grace. It's a restriction of mercy. It is a kindness. Because we're told here in verse 2, it is so that Aaron die not. His sons have died. Two of his sons have died. God didn't want that to happen to Aaron. He wanted to be a pattern in a particular way that would safeguard and protect him. It was that he die not. So Aaron had to come at a set time in a set way. And the first thing he had to do was to take a bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering and the bullock for the sin offering and the ram for the uh, burnt offering they were personal sacrifices he had to take one for a sin offering one for a burnt offering personally I, to himself and to his family he had to wash and then wear the holy garments white linen plain garments at this point not the elaborate high priestly garments we more often think about but the plain garments and then he had to take for the children of Israel again animals for a sin offering and for a burnt offering but slightly different for himself he took a bullock for the sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering he still took a ram for the burnt offering for the children of Israel but instead of the bullock, he had to take, this time, two goats for the sin offering for the nation. So he's got all the animals ready, he's prepared himself and bathed, then he has to actually start doing something with them. And what he does is, first of all, offer his own animals for himself and his family, to make an atonement for himself and his family, so that he is able to act as priest on behalf of the nation. He's not fit to do it himself. He's a sinner like the rest of them. So he has to offer these animals for himself. Then he presents the people's animals before the Lord. And there's these two goats. And they cast lots over the goats. One of them is to be the Lord's and particularly offered up as a sin offering to the Lord. But they were both together to make a sin offering. That wasn't all that was to be done. The other one that was left alive was left alive before the Lord in order to make an atonement with God. And that animal they were actually to let go. It would escape into the wilderness. It was the scapegoat. And it's a scapegoat we want to be thinking about particularly tonight. But let's just finish off first what else happens. Aaron then goes in, first of all, with the incense from the altar. And he goes with the blood of the bullock, his own sin offering, for himself. And he sprinkles that blood upon the mercy seat, that he die not seven times. 
Then he goes back out and he kills the sin offering goat, one of the two goats, for the people. And then he does the same thing. And he goes again with the blood of this sin offering for the nation. And he sprinkles that upon the mercy seat that they die not. And in doing this then, according to verse 16, he is making an atonement for the holy place and for the tabernacle of the congregation. This tabernacle had been, as it were, polluted by the sinfulness of the people using it all year long, and it needed cleansing. He had to do it alone. There was to be nobody else in the complex building with him. And then he comes out, and he makes an atonement then for the, the things in the courtyard area, not in the building itself of the, of the tabernacle, but the altars and the horns. And he sprinkles the blood of the bullocks and the goats upon them. In verse 19 we find out that this sprinkling of the blood is making atonement for the altar. Cleansing it from the sins of the people who are using it all year long. And then we come to verse 20 which is a key verse. You notice probably it's got a, a paragraph mark as a, something different, a different theme slightly in verse 20. When he has done reconciling, as it were, the mercy seat and the tabernacle and the altar, then he takes a live goat. The whole place is now purged and cleansed. It is now in a fit state. It is all clear of the pollution of the people from the whole year. And he takes a live goat. And at this point in verse 21 comes a famous scene that we can picture in our mind's eye. That's in our text. The imputation of all iniquities and transgressions and sins of all Israel is laid upon the scapegoat. And that goat is sent away to the wilderness to bear the iniquities of the nation to a place uninhabited. After that, in verse 23, Aaron disrobes his vestments and he washes in the holy place. And now he comes forth out of the tabernacle and takes up the burnt offerings for himself and the people, the rams, and makes an atonement for the people and for himself. The fat of the sin offerings is burnt upon the altar. And then the carcasses of the bullock and the goat are taken out of the camp entirely and burnt. Those who carry the carcasses are polluted by that, but then they are cleansed and bathed, and then they get to come back in. And that's the conclusion of the Day of Atonement. You can see we've had to run through it quite quickly there, but you get the idea of what's happening. First of all, the priest cleanses for himself, then he brings the animals forward for the people. One of them is a peculiar one, though it doesn't get sacrificed, but it gets the hands of the priest upon it as an imputation of the sins of the people on that one animal, and it gets taken away. And that's what I want to look with you particularly today, at the actions of the high priest in relation to that scapegoat, in order we can try to answer this question of ours. How have your sins gone? Well, first of all then, the intimacy of the high priest's confession. The intimacy... What we have here is a great lesson of the work of Christ for his people in verse 21. 
he is, of course, both priest and offering. Christ is. The priest and the sacrifice are inevitably different in the Old Testament, but Christ is both. He is the high priest who performs the action, and he is represented by the scapegoat who bears the action. And I want to begin by noticing the intimate awareness and knowledge that the high priest had to have of the people. He had to know them deeply. Aaron had to, verse 21, confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. He had to be acquainted with all their ways, we might say. He had to have spent the whole year engaging with the congregation, knowing them, speaking to them, walking amongst them. How could he perform the great task once in the year of confessing their sins unless he was amongst them, unless he knew them intimately? He was not to hide himself away from the people of God. He was to be amongst them, as we might say today, going in and out amongst the people. And that, that is what gives us, first of all, this surprising intimacy in the confession of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And the people were all, the whole nation gathered for this. It was a great festival. And they all gathered, listening intently. And they had to feel as if it was really their confession that was being made by the priest. Of their own sins, as if it could just as easily have been themselves speaking, admitting their sins. He was the speaker, but he was speaking their words. And it was so close, the bond between the high priest and the people. So much was the high priest identified with these people. He was able to make a full confession of their sins on their behalf. And if that was true to a measure of the high priest in Israel, how much more so of the Lord Jesus. How intimately he is acquainted with all our ways. How capable he is to deal directly on our behalf. We've already sang together from Psalm 69. We'll be singing it again in conclusion. And verse 5 says, Lord, thou my folly knowest, my sins not covered are from thee. It's a messianic psalm. Christ is a speaker. How can he say that? Messianic psalm 69 bears this intimate confession. It almost feels wrong in the mouth of the Saviour. And yet there he is. And such is his identification with his people. Such is his nearness to you, Christian. That he knows you. And he knows your sins. And he is willing to confess them as it were. One of the commentators says that in the later and more degenerate ages of the Jewish church. They have prepared a set form of confession for the high priest. A bit like sort of a book of prayer would be today in a, some of the high churches. But God here prescribed none. But it might be supposed that the high priest was so well acquainted with the state of the people and had such a tender concern for them that he needed not any form. The tenderness of the care of the high priest for the people, so well acquainted with all their failings. Consider the love of Christ for your soul, Christian. All the failings that you have, 
all the iniquities that are yours, all the transgressions you have to own. Consider how well he knows you. The one whose table is spread before you in the gospel tomorrow, in the sacrament tomorrow, the one who invites you, come and dine, is the same one who knows the depths of your heart, who knows the fears that you have over whether you should sit there or not. Nothing is hid from him about you at all. And yet he says to you, this do in remembrance of me. How have your sins gone? By the intimate confession made for you by your high priest. He became man. He took our nature. He lived amongst us. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was made sin even. Why? That he might be our great high priest and our scapegoat. And that takes us on secondly into an area we've really already been straying into a wee bit by this point, but you'll forgive me for that. Which is secondly, the scope of the high priest's confession. We looked at the intimacy of it, the connection with his people. But look at the breadth of it, the scope of it. With his hands firmly fixed upon the head of the animal, the high priest makes his confession. Hands on the head of an animal. There's an imputation happening. It's an association that this animal, this offering, now bears all these sins I'm putting onto it by the confession of them. They are being, as it were, transferred through the hands of the priest from the people to the animal. And notice it was with his hands on the animal that Aaron makes the confession in verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. And the hands of Aaron had to remain on the animal throughout what must have been a detailed confession. It was all transferred to the scapegoat. And so it was that the intimate knowledge that the high priest had of the sins of his people, he knew their sins, that knowledge of being about them and amongst them is now put into an effect and a use it has now seemed to be necessary that he knew these things in order for him to transfer the guilt of these sins to the animal. And here again we are witnesses to the wonder of Christ and what he does for us. It's not only that he knows our every sin, knows our failings, knows the ways that we have shamed him, and that still make us ashamed to even remember them. But also taking our every sin from us. Acting in his priestly capacity to take all the sins off all his people. And place them onto himself as the only true sin offering to God. He takes him from us as our priest and on to himself as our scapegoat. He is both priest and offering for us. And the confession of the priest was as detailed, as particular as he could make it. Not only of all the iniquities of the children of Israel, 
but of all their transgressions in all their sins, it says. In one sin, you might have many, many transgressions where you do one thing, but actually when you start to look at it, all different things that are wrong fly out of it like jack-in-the-box. Nothing was to be left out. All their iniquities and all their transgressions and all their sins. Why was nothing left out? Because the connection was so important. What connection? Notice that between the scope of the confession made and the sin that is to be borne away. And that's a serious matter. The only sins that were borne away were the sins that were confessed. That's how atonement was made. Now you consider your own confession of sin. Consider the times that you fall asleep at night halfway through. Consider the times that conscience smites you in the middle of the day and you do nothing about it. Consider the times when you barely remember in your prayers the things you're meant to be confessing. Consider the many times you have to admit I'm sure there's more I should have said in confession, but I can't even think. My conscience is so sleepy. Remember how casually at times, how easily sometimes you have glossed over details in confessing your sins. What's going to happen? Is the only sin, is only the sin confessed, born away? Well then, what hope is there for us in this? How glad we are, friends, then to come to the scope of the confession, not of your confession, but of your priest on your behalf. <clears throat> not to come to the scope of my confession of my sins or your confession of your sins, but to come to the scope of Christ's confession of all our sins as our high priest, as each Sin is laid to his charge in the courtroom of Calvary. He confesses it to own it, as it were, for himself. Not his own by act, but his own by imputation. He claims the right to suffer and die for that sin and for this sin and for this sin and for your sin and for my sin. He says, yea, that sin is one of the sins of my people who is precious in my sight, whom I have chosen and loved, for whom I am dying. It is therefore to be put to my account. You may not take it from me. You must give it to me. You may not leave it upon the burden of the conscience of my child. I confess it. I have laid that sin upon my own head. I will bear the guilt of it. I will bear the consequence of it. Let none fall upon my people. Blessed confession of the Saviour. Blessed Saviour of the confession of all the sins of all his people. Oh, what a wonderful lamb who bore in his body all my sins to the tree. No sin is left out of his confession. No sin is left out of his confession. All is imputed to him. We can be sure, of course, sure that Aaron and every earthly high priest that ever followed him failed to confess every single sin and iniquity and transgression of all the people. It was not humanly possible for Aaron or any other to own all the sins. 
but not so for our Saviour. Oh dear, feeble confessor of your sins, you may rejoice in this, that you have a high priest who confesses them all for you, who owns all your sins, who bears all your iniquities. Do you think that this is your burden before the Lord's Supper tomorrow? You would come to that table if only you could confess your sins properly. That's impossible. And therefore, if that's your standard, you will never come. But Christ has taken them all to himself. He has owned them in his own bosom. They are his by imputation. He will not let you take them from him. He knows what he is doing. He took them all from you and laid them all upon himself. And we should remember this, dear child of God. You who love the Lord here tonight, whether you profess him or not, if you love the Lord here tonight, remember, remember this. When the evil one comes to make his insinuations against you, to make his accusations against your soul, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps if you sit at the table itself tomorrow, remember that where you have failed, he hasn't. Remember that your scapegoat has taken the full burden of the imputation of all your sins. The scope of the high priest's confession. Thirdly, the effect. The effect of the high priest's confession. How have your sins gone? That's our question. How does it come about that they are lifted from the account of every single Christian? Well, let's look. Look and see what's happening. There, there stands Aaron. His hands firmly planted on the head of that goat. A goat that is destined to be banished. A goat that is destined to be abandoned, forsaken in the wilderness. You look at Aaron there. And his lips are moving. And his voice is cracking with the weight and the solemnity of the ceremony and of the sins that he must confess. His throat is exhausted. His hands are weary. His frame is shaking. But on he goes. He must carry on confessing sin after sin, transgression after transgression. He dare not stop until all is done. What is he accomplishing? What is the effect of this confession it is to transfer guilt away from the people of God to the offering we call it imputation imputation is a big word but there's a very small word in it put it is putting the sins of the people of God upon the offering chosen by God the Lamb of God. What did John say about it? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. 
Christ is taking the sins away from his people. The high priest with his hands upon the, upon the sacrifice is taking them off the people and putting them onto the substitute. And so it follows. Wonderfully it follows. He is also therefore transferring not only the sins but the punishment incurred for these sins. From the people to the animal. That goat is to take these sins away forever to the empty wastelands of the wilderness. It is to suffer banishment from the people of God. It is to be forsaken. It dies in the wilderness. Alone. Abandoned. This then is what is happening as an object lesson. As a very carefully, divinely constructed illustration. Teaching Israel about imputation. And the real imputation is far more real than the shadow of a priest with his hands on a goat. There's something far more substantial about what happens with the real imputation. That's a picture of it. But imputation of sins away from sinners towards a sacrifice really and truly occurs when our high priest, Jesus Christ, takes to himself our sins, your sins and mine, claiming them, claiming the right to represent us in all the dread consequences of these sins. Jesus in Gethsemane. Remember he took the cup that was offered to him. That cup was the cup of his father's wrath. But it was the cup of his father's wrath. Why was Christ getting that cup? Because he had embraced his people's sins. He had taken the sins of his people. Holy to himself. Christ. We are baptized into Christ. We are baptized in Christ's name. We take Christ to us, if you like. That's the picture. Christ was baptized. He was taking to himself his people and all their sins. That's why he got the cup of wrath from his father. You go and read after this. The psalm we're singing, Psalm 69. Go and read the confessions of Jesus. In that psalm and other messianic psalms particularly. Confessing as if they were his own. The deepest, vilest sins of his people. He is bringing our sins upon his own head. There are words, as we mentioned, that we are almost uncomfortable hearing from the lips of Jesus. But on he goes. Taking and accepting all the sins Of all his people. And how he will suffer for that. That of course is more our subject. For tomorrow. We'll try not to strain it. But yes. How he suffered. For what he took for his people. But this is how our sins are banished. By our scapegoat. Taking them to himself. It's not that our sins are gone away. How? Oh, well, they're just forgotten about. They're swept under the carpet. They're sort of ignored. God just chooses to forget about them. No, they are rightly 
righteously, fully dealt with by the law of God. Just not in us, but in him, in our substitute. And so eventually, as the sun begins to set, no doubt, Aaron finishes his confession. He gets to the very end and it is done. It is finished. And the sins of the people of God are now transferred in the fullness of that confession onto the innocence of the scapegoat. What will happen to the goat now? And our question really, I suppose, is, well, that's what our sins are. What will happen to our sins? So fourthly, finally, the end of the high priest's confession. There came then the moment for Aaron to break the bond formed between him and the scapegoat. His hands have been on this animal for hours. His hands on the head of the animal. His confession finally complete. He lifts his hands off the goat and sends him away by the hand of a fit man into a wilderness, in far, far away, where that animal would never be found again, never be seen again. It was to be lost in the wilderness. And there is scope here to consider the forsaking of Christ, perhaps, but I want to constrain our attention to the, the aspect of him carrying away our sins, because this is our hope. It's not just that they're cast away, they're taken away. Tomorrow, we trust, we will feast more upon what was involved in the suffering of the Saviour to bear away our sins. But the end of the ceremony was that the sins of Israel were now borne by the goat. They are removed far out of sight. And they can be left there as they were, never to be seen again. And the children of Israel were meant to be assured of that. They were not meant to doubt it. They were meant to believe it and trust to what God had provided for them. So the goat is led away and the goat is abandoned. But the people aren't. The people are not abandoned. The people are not led out to the wilderness again. And that's atonement. Where sin is dealt with. And yet the people are also accepted. Because sin is dealt with in their substitute instead of them. And the result of it is. The ecstasy. And the excitement of reconciliation. And the people of God say. We are at one with God. There atoned, there is reconciliation, there is peace, there is communion with God through what our scapegoat has done. And let that, dear friends, be our confidence too, to enjoy tomorrow communion with God because our sins have been taken away. Let that be the hallelujah of our soul, that our sins have been taken away. But there are places when the picture falls short of the reality. It can't but. It's only an illustration at best. Even a God-given one is still an illustration. And you see, 
Our high priest, unlike Aaron, doesn't break the connection with the sacrifice because he is himself that scapegoat. And like that goat, he carries away our sins so we will never see them again. God allowed them to have this understanding from this ceremony that the sending away of the goat was the sending away of their sins. It was very clear that that was the import of it. There was a full and free remission granted to them for all these sins that were confessed. They were free, therefore, to come near to God now because they had been atoned for. They had been accepted in their persons. And there was a great rejoicing on the Day of Atonement. It was the happiest day. It was a solemn day in Israel. But oh, it was such a joyful day. And that was Israel under the shadows, under the types. Largely still stumbling around in the darkness. Are we not much more warranted, therefore, to make the same conclusion when we take Christ to be our scapegoat? Christ as our high priest and Christ as our all. When we have the reality of what is pictured in these things, can we not rejoice? Can we not say, yes, there is an atonement for me, a sinner? Can we not say, well, if Christ has taken away my sins, I must be free. I must be. Must be free to come to God. I must be at liberty to enjoy the fruits of the atonement. I must have a place set for me on the day of the feast to sit with the people of God at the table of God. What keeps you away? What sin do you think Christ would not take? There isn't one for the Christian. Not a single one. May we not then go forward to his table tomorrow with this confidence. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we have shamed the Lord in so many ways. But now he asks us to do this. Can we not say, well, my sins, though they are a scarlet, have been carried far away. And they will never come between me and the Lord. And there is a true atonement for us. May we come to his table, friends, as the beneficiaries of his atonement and as the companions of Christ tomorrow. May he bless his word. Let us pray. No, Lord our God, we thank thee indeed for that great imputation. We thank thee, Lord, that Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. We're ashamed, O oh Lord, of what we are, what we've done. We feel on the one hand as if only we could take it back, we would never do it again. On the other hand, we're afraid we'd do it exactly the same all over again. We look at our confessions and they're incomplete and they're stammering and they're stumbling and there's, there's gaps and there's holes like a net. 
but not so in the confession of our sins by our Saviour himself, who says, and this sin too I die for. Oh, what a lovely high priest he is. Oh, how beautiful is the beauty of holiness in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we see more of him. May he come in tomorrow and sup with us and we with him. To his praise and glory we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, our closing item of praise we said is Psalm number 69. Singing now from verse 5 down to verse 9, four stanzas. Psalm 69. Lord, thou my folly knowest, my sins not covered are from thee. Let none that wait on thee be shamed, Lord God of hosts, for me. O Lord, the God of Israel, let none who search to make and seek thee be at any time confounded for my sake. And so on. Psalm 69, from 5 to 9. Lord, thou my folly knowest thy sins not covered Oh.
following then are the intimations. <coughs> the Carrick session has now been constituted, and if anyone wishes to come forward to the Lord's table for the first time on a profession of faith, please speak to one of the elders, and the Carrick session will gladly arrange to meet with you. Similarly, if anyone has a disjunction certificate or uh, is visiting and is a member in good standing of another congregation, then please speak to an elder likewise uh, about joining us tomorrow at the Lord's table. The service tomorrow is at 11am at which the Lord's Supper will be dispensed. Evening service at 6.30 and after that a fellowship uh, in the manse I believe. Thanksgiving service on Monday at 7.30. And if intending communicants would please stay behind for a moment or two after the benediction, then tokens will be uh, distributed. And just a reminder once more, a practical note, that the clocks change uh, this evening, tonight. And so please bear that in mind for the service times tomorrow. These all, God willing. <coughs> The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all, both now and ever. Amen. Amen.